you will recall that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had a history. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar told him he was going to do something. The government told, did I say government? The government, let me do it again because that went right over some of your heads. The government told Daniel that he was going to do something that God told him he should not do. And Daniel said, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to do what God said to do. I'm Terry Knighton, the pastor of New Life Community Church here on the outskirts of beautiful Ridgeway, Virginia. I trust you know who you are, and I want to welcome you to New Life Telecast. Tonight, we're going to jump right into a brand new teaching. I have referred to it over the summertime as my summertime series. I really didn't intend for it to be that, but it turned into that, and uh, it's titled simply Ezra. And you probably figured out from that that our text will be taken from the Old Testament book of Ezra. Now let me uh, throw out this disclaimer. Some of what you hear in this message will sound very political. I do not mean to be political. This message deals with some issues of politics in terms of the government of the country in which I reside, the United States of America and deals with some issues pertaining to government that I really believe the church needs to know and understand these days. Now, just briefly, let me say this. There are some, some issues that our government has picked up on and encroached upon that really is the territory of the church, not the government. So it seems like when you talk about these issues, that you're dabbling around in politics. That's not the case. Politics has started dabbling around in the church where they have no business whatsoever or the government as such. Now, I've probably just lost about half the audience right there, but I trust you'll stick with us and, and listen to this teaching through to the end. And this could be a long series here on New Life. We'll see our New Life telecast We'll see how that plays out. I want to read for you from the Old Testament book of Ezra, actually chapter 1 and verse number 1 as we get into this, and the record puts it this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and to put it in writing. And we'll talk about that proclamation in due time. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for each one that's turned on this telecast. I pray in Jesus' name that I would stay in your word and that your word, as we sow it into the hearts and the lives and the ears and the minds of the hearer, that it would not return void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out, the salvation of the souls of men. And we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, you hang on. Keep your Bibles handy. Walk along with us if you would, please. And I'll be back here in just about 26 minutes to wrap things up. God bless. For the last 
longest while. The Lord has had me in the book of 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, with some personal study time. And I got to Ezra, and I've just been fascinated by Ezra, the Old Testament book of Ezra. Now watch this. This is kind of a sermon within the sermon this morning. On occasion, someone will ask me, hey, do you all believe in or do you teach the Old Testament or the New Testament? And my response is usually a curt, yes. Yes. The Old Testament provides a foundation of spiritual principles, actually a lot of physical illustrations of the spiritual principles that are given in the New Testament, one's foundational to the other. Now, for those that would argue that we do not live under the Old Testament, uh, uh, the Old Covenant dispensation of time, I get all of that. I also know that Jesus Christ quoted from the Old Testament a lot. Everybody say a lot. A lot. What does that tell you? Tells you it's important. The Apostle Paul was forever reaching back and quoting in his New Testament writings from the Old Testament. So here is the book of Ezra. If you haven't dipped back into the Old Testament that much, I would encourage you to do so from time to time. Ezra, only 10 chapters. My little granddaughter this week says, I'm this many now. She was this many, now she's this many. But just 10 chapters, 280 verses. You know how I know there are 280 verses? I counted them. I do that sort of thing, did that for you, 280 verses. One of, in my estimation, one of the obscure nuggets of the Old Testament that even many Bible readers never discover. People that would say to you, yes, I read the Bible. I have a devotional life. Have you ever read Ezra? What? May not even know what you're talking about. I told you all of that to take you back to chapter 1 and verse number 1, and it starts this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Now, if you have read the book of Ezra, you know that that proclamation would come in real handy sometime later on. Now, look at that verse. Folks, there is a lot in this one verse. And on the PowerPoint or the keynote, whatever the case might be, I've got a little slash in there every now and then. Look at this with me. The first year of, king, uh, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. The specificity here is impressive. What do I mean by that? A specific king, Cyrus. A specific country, Persia. A specific year, most commentators would agree around 536 B.C., even secular historians, a specific prophecy regarding a specific prophet by the name of Jeremiah, more about him in just a moment, a specific proclamation 
put forth by Cyrus. Now, with that, let me pause for just a moment and listen. I tell you this a lot, but this morning in particular, if you don't pay attention, you're going to get lost. This is a little bit of a history lesson this morning, very foundational for what I hope to share with you in the coming weeks. But with that, let me tell you this. Number one on your study notes, fill this in with me. This book, the book of Ezra, isn't just about Ezra. It's not just about Ezra. He's the human instrument that is responsible for writing it down. So we're really getting a bird's eye view. We're really getting an insider view. As I mentioned earlier about my own reading, also First and Second Chronicles is attributed, uh, attributed to the pen of Ezra, as well as, some would argue to you, Psalm 119. I'm not going into all that detail this morning. Ezra's genealogical pedigree is fascinating. Now listen, I'm not trying to wow you with a bunch of words, a bunch of fancy words this morning, but uh, this, this is fascinating to me, his genealogical pedigree. And perhaps a little bit more about your genealogical pedigree as we move on this morning. For one, Ezra was descended from a high priest. It would have been his great, 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 and I didn't add it up. His great-grandfather, many times removed, a gentleman by the name of Hilkiah. You may remember Hilkiah as the priest who rediscovered the Word of God when Israel lost the Word of God. Can you imagine? I know there are probably a lot of Sundays around your house where you hear, where's my Bible? I can't find my Bible. Or maybe nowadays, Where's my phone? I can't find my phone. Israel lost the word of God. Look at your neighbor and say, what a bunch of dodos. Have you read your Bible this week? If you haven't, then do not call Israel a bunch of dodos. That was a mean trick, wasn't it? They lost the word of God. Hilkiah, the priest, found it, and again, he was connected to Ezra. Many, 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 many generations later, Ezra would come along. Number two on your study notes. We'll knock these out right quick like. Before going any further, I want us to realize, I want you to understand, I will repeat this in some various ways over the next few moments. Ezra is an Israelite. And his life was lived out mostly as an exile. What do I mean by that? God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, the Israelites, a whole nation of people at some point in time became a divided nation. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah in the south, the southernmost kingdom, was subjugated by, another big old word, subjugated by the Babylonians under the rulership of good old King Nebuchadnezzar. Israel in the north was subjugated earlier to the Assyrian people. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that when the people of Israel uh, had an enemy come in and carry them off, that the people in the south would have looked at that and said, we don't want that to happen to us. Wouldn't you think that? Everybody say, bunch of dodos. Yeah. 
Keep all that on a back burner, if you would, please. Just let it simmer for a moment. Look again in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. I told you I would tell you a little bit more about him. Here we are. Who is Jeremiah? You may know him as the writer of the book of Jeremiah. Even before that, Jeremiah is a prophet of God. What did he speak? We're told here in Ezra that he spoke something to fulfill the word of the Lord. He, he spoke concerning Cyrus. We're going to find out a little bit more about that and how that fulfilled the word of the Lord. Again, Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet. And all that that means, watch this, is that he relayed the message of God. There are a lot of people running around today claiming to be a prophet. I'm not sure that they are prophets because they are not echoing the word of God. But Jeremiah was a true prophet of God. He relayed or echoed the message of God sometime between the years of 650 and 570 B.C., a span of about 80 years. If you're interested in this sort of thing, you can make a notation, but the first three verses of the book of Jeremiah, uh, of his prophecy, give us the exact times of his prophetic speaking, even given secular kings and secular sources whereby you can validate all of this. Now, watch this. Jeremiah foretold. He spoke beforehand, foretold that after 70 years, of holding Judah captive, the southernmost kingdom captive, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom would be destroyed. After they had held Israel or Judah captive for 70-some years, their kingdom would be destroyed, and the people of Judah would be restored to their own land. You can read about that in Jeremiah 29. You read about that in Jeremiah 33. You'll have to do that on your own time. Now, watch this. This is very important. It is very biblically important for you to understand this. That famed 70 years is mentioned multiple times in the Bible, but that famed 70 years would come to pass during the time of Cyrus, the king of Persia. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles, obviously here in the book of Ezra. I'm at number three on your study notes. Fill this in with me. At this pivotal point, Cyrus would make a proclamation for the restoration of Judah and for the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem. I didn't say this earlier, but when some mean, old, ugly enemy people come in and take Israel captive, they usually don't just haul them off and leave everything as it was. They destroy everything. The temple was destroyed, which was symbolic of the presence of God in their midst. There's a subliminal message in that. I'm not going a lot deeper at this point. Now, there are some minor tweaks among theologians as to the exact beginning and the exact ending of that 70-year period of time. Can I encourage you not to get hung up on some of those arguments? Regardless when it convened and when it concluded, it did happen, and it was over a 70-year period of time just as God prophesied through his spokesperson, Jeremiah. 
Now, are you with me so far? Isn't this intriguing? Uh-oh, I just about lost my microphone. You still with me? That's probably more disconcerting to me than you. 200 years before Cyrus was born. Let me do that again. 200 years before Cyrus was born. He was mentioned by another famed mouthpiece of God. None other than Isaiah. Not Jeremiah this time, but Isaiah. Two completely different peeps in two different parts of the earth in some respects. Isaiah would make it very clear that Cyrus, the Persian king, would be appointed by God and raised up for the restoration of God's people. When did that happen? 200 years before he was born. Now, how cool is that? That somebody might make a proclamation about you 200 years before you were born. And then, to beat it all, you're born. That kind of adds some emphasis to the prophecy. Am I right? And then, whatever it was that was prophesied you were going to do, you end up doing it. That's incredible to me. Thus, one of the reasons, primary reasons, why I am convinced, and you'll have to make up your own mind, your own heart, and your own spirit, but one of the reasons why I am convinced that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. By the way, this is just one example among dozens. Now, remember, 200 years before, in the meantime, there's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and his evil enemy kingdom. Now, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is conquered by Cyrus. Now, I'm going to jump around a little bit here. It's necessary to do so. Many learned men think or believe this. They believe that Cyrus after whooping up on and conquering Babylon, in other words, Nebuchadnezzar, they believe that Cyrus found Daniel there within that Babylonian kingdom and tapped him as prime minister over all the provinces of the empire. You will recall that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had a history. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar told him he was going to do something. The government told Did I say government? The government, let me do it again because that went right over some of your heads. The government told Daniel that he was going to do something that God told him he should not do. And Daniel said, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to do what God said to do. I'm going to be God's man. By the way, young people, he was a very, very young man when all of this began. He was told he couldn't worship the true and living God, but he did it anyway. We are living in a day and age where you, beloved, dwelling in Ridgeway, Virginia, and all of those people around the world that are listening by way of live stream, you are told that you cannot serve the true and living God. Do it anyhow. Do it anyhow. Do you, under, do you realize, and this will sound like I'm tooting my own horn, do you realize how brave a man has to be nowadays to stand before a camera and broadcast all over the whole world these Bible truths? That's why we need your prayers. Well, I got a little preachy there, didn't I? Now, that sets the stage 
for me to make the connection between Cyrus and Ezra. I haven't made that connection yet. And without going into a lot of intricate detail, let me remind you, numero four on your study notes, let me remind you that Ezra was contemporary with the Old Testament character, Nehemiah. Boy, we're putting a lot of names in here this morning, aren't we? Ezra was of the priestly order. Nehemiah was, for all intents and purposes, a layman. Ezra, as an Israelite, was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, how is it, watch this, very important, how is it that a descendant of Abram or Abraham finds himself a captive or exiled? Does that baffle you just a little bit? How does that happen? Unfortunately, Ezra's forebears, his relatives going back, failed to live in pursuit of the things of God. Let me do that again. Ezra's forebears failed to live in pursuit of the things of God. Everybody still with me? You understand living? Living, it's a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 300-and-some-odd days a year deal. Living, living in pursuit of God. His relatives failed to accomplish that. Now, I asked myself as I was studying this, self, is that a big deal? Is it a big deal that your relatives fail to live a life, a lifestyle of pursuing after the things of God? Is that a big deal? Well, it was for Ezra. And it was for Ezra's peeps because it resulted in his having to serve out much of his life as an exile, as a captive. As already stated, the worst aspect of that, and sometimes I think we just gloss right over this, but it's the fact that Ezra and his peoples were under the authority of a governmental power that viewed them as inferior. You know, as Americans, we do not have to deal with that too much, but they were having to deal with that constantly. It's interesting when you consider what God Almighty said about Ezra's people. In fact, won't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bibles? Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse number 2. God speaking to the people of Israel, his people, actually speaking to Abraham as, as the head of the nation, the head of the race, if you please, or this ethnicity. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be a blessing through you. So I come away from that just a few chapters later, perhaps a few books Later, and I have to ask myself, how in the world did this exile come to be? How is it that God's people that were promised 
a great nation and promised all these blessings, how is it that those very persons are captured and hauled off to a, a foreign country to live under a tyrant king? How did that happen? I just told you a few moments ago, watch this. God's people, the Israelites, abandoned him. They failed to live in pursuit of God. Do you realize that it's easier to do that than you might imagine? Beloved, we're going to try to wrap it up right there. And let me reemphasize something to you we've spoken about in this particular teaching. God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, the Jews, had pulled back and had failed to live in pursuit of God. Is that a big deal? It was a big deal because when they pulled back from the pursuit of God, they also pulled back from the protection and provision of God. Now, there's an overarching theme in this particular teaching that we're going to be uh, engaging with you over the next few weeks, and it is simply this. Any nation that fails to live in pursuit of God also chooses to refuse the protection and provision of God. Are we seeing that in our own country today? What many have referred to in my lifetime, you don't hear it so much anymore, but in my lifetime, America was referred to as a Christian nation. By anybody's uh, standards, today we sort of kind of live in a post-Christian era in terms of the whole of the nation, and we're paying a price for it. That's what we're going to be dealing with in this particular teaching and hopefully encouraging the many. It won't be the masses, but the many to yield to the Word of God and to come back to, to come running back to the Word of God and establish a relationship with God through a Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for each one listening in, and I pray that your Word, your message, has penetrated the hearts of each hearer. Lord, I pray that we would resolve to pursue you, we being not only the church, but the community and even our nation, would once again pursue you with a reckless abandon. I pray, I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, it's that time of the program where I remind you that New Life has a regular schedule of activities. Let me encourage you to connect with a church body where the Word of God is being preached and taught. Not a lot of places are teaching the Word of God in this day and age, and I'm not here to cast aspersions on other movements or people that disagree with me but to lift high the Word of God and a banner of holiness and encourage folks to follow after that. We meet Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. The messages that you hear on New Life Telecast, that's what we do. And there's obviously a lot more going on at New Life than that. Way more, I might add. We also have midweek activities Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, something for every member of the family. If you're a parent, you're looking for a place where your children are discipled and taught the Word of God, we do that here. If you're looking for a place where your youth can be taught and discipled and trained in the Word of God, we do that here. We have a great youth group. They're not entertainment-based. They have a lot of fun. They do a lot of things. In fact, a lot of them are just fun looking for a place to happen. But when they're here, we disciple them. That's what we're purposed to do. Uh, contact information is on the screen. Check out our website. A lot of uh, helpful information there. 
And I trust, uh, trust you'll be blessed in that process. I'm Terry Knight, the pastor of New Life Community Church. I've got to get out of here. Trust you're going to have a great day, what's left of it. And remember, my friends, Jesus is coming back. Is He coming back for you?